I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 2. We have two readings tonight. The first one comes from Psalm 2. Hear the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That was our first reading. The second one comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, the verses 23 to 31. Acts 4, the verses 23 through 31. Peter and John had been arrested by the religious rulers, questioned and released again. Acts 4 verse 23 says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Our text this evening will be the first six verses of Psalm 2. Tomorrow morning we hope to do the balance, the verses 7 through 12. But tonight we will focus on Psalm 2, the verses 1 through 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2022 is almost over. What did you think? Perhaps for some it can't end quickly enough. For you this was a year of sorrow, difficulties. Don't want to think about this past year. You can't really think much about the year that lies ahead. But maybe others don't feel that way at all. Maybe some of you are looking back on this year with fondness. This was the year that you fell in love or got married or were promoted. But those are all personal things, of course. What about looking at it from a global perspective? Were you concerned at all this past year at all the things that happened Have you forgotten that in the end of this past February, Putin's forces invaded the Ukraine? We experienced ongoing and increasing tensions with China. At the end of August, they carried out their largest ever military exercise around Taiwan. The many changes that have taken place this past year in society and in culture have been intimidating. Lots of raging, lots of general restlessness, lots of plotting, grumbling, murmuring among the nations. So maybe the most important question for us to ask is, what does God think of all this? Where is he? What did he think of 2022? Well, we don't have to be left guessing. Scripture tells us he thinks the same thing about this past year as he has thought about all that came before. What does the Lord think of this past year? He laughs in derision, and he speaks in his wrath. Those will also be the two points that we pay attention to this evening. So this evening we read Psalm 2 together. This psalm is unique. It gives us a perspective that we could never have attained on our own. Uh, A big picture perspective, uh, a perspective that zooms back and encompasses heaven and earth. It says that the nations are raging, they're restless, they're, they're up to something. There's political strife in the first verse. They're plotting together, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together. And you might ask, what is all this raging about? And many of us would say, well, that's political unrest. The psalm says, no, no, this is actually a form of rebellion. The kings of the earth 
set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, you might wonder, how does that logically follow? How is the raging of the nations that's portrayed here a form of rebellion against God? Well, don't forget, when the psalm was first written, the Lord's anointed was King David and his descendants. According to Acts 4 verse 25, the psalm was written by King David. King David underwent a lot of this kind of thing that's described in these first verses. According to 2 Samuel 5 verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. Why were they looking for him? It wasn't to pay him tribute. We're used to an orderly transition of power, but back then, in the ancient Near East, when a new king came to the throne, that was the time when everybody who was under him, all the, all the nations that had to pay tribute, would try to rebel. That would be the perfect time to do it. When he's just coming in, he's still figuring things out. That was when they rebelled. And that pattern reflected itself later on in the life of King Solomon as well. This was a common thing. So the anointed here is the king, and the nations are are rising up against this Davidic king. But then why, in what way, would this be rebellion against the Lord? No, it was because the Israelite king was the embodiment of God's rule on earth. Think of the big picture. Jerusalem, the land of Israel, was the only place on earth where you could go to the temple and literally meet with God. The land of Israel was often described as a land of milk and honey. It was, in a sense, an echo of paradise. And the Israelite king was in the middle of that, on the throne, as God's representative. You had prophets, priests, and the king. And the king represented God's authority. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 23, the throne of Israel is specifically referred to as the throne of the Lord. So rebelling against the Lord's anointed definitely constitutes rebelling against the Lord himself. So, so the real issue here is not that they rebelled against an earthly king. The real issue, the real um, issue that the psalm is about is that they are rebelling against the Lord. And that's very clear from verse 2, isn't it? Look at verse 2. It says that they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It doesn't say against the anointed and against the Lord. No, it says against the Lord, first and foremost, and against the person who represents him, the anointed. So that's what the psalm is about. This is about rebellion against the Lord. Now, what does that mean to rebel against the Lord? It means to reject his authority and to act as you see fit. That behavior is not limited to a few tribes in the Iron Age. Instead, it characterizes the attitude of of all people who rebel against God. So now, the psalm is starting to come closer to us. This is becoming more and more relevant as we think about it. Verse 1 and 2 refers to the nations, the peoples, the kings of the earth, the rulers. There are no exceptions to any of this. They're all in rebellion against God. Now this becomes even more clear from a New Testament perspective. You may not know this, but Psalm 2 is extremely important to the New Testament. 
The New Testament writers look back on this psalm and they quote from it or allude to it 18 different times in the New Testament. And one of those places is Acts 4, verse 23 to 31, which we read together. So clearly from a New Testament perspective, this psalm was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They make it very clear there that they see him as the anointed who sits on the throne. So anyone who rejects Christ, anyone who rejects his gospel is in rebellion against God. Jesus himself already made that clear in John 3 verse 36 when he said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's no neutrality possible when it comes to considering the claims of this king. You're either for him or you're against him. There's no middle ground. So by that standard, a lot of what happened in this past year in this world constituted rebellion against God, doesn't it? There's been a lot of rebelling against God. From entire nations to politicians, from people in power to lobbyists, from organizations to unions, many people are actively rejecting whatever still remains of the rule of God in their lives. They're normalizing the abnormal, celebrating the perverse, legalizing things that are evil. They're rebelling against the Lord. Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us, they say. And the psalmist expresses amazement at this. Why are they doing that? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? There's a sense of incredulity. How, how can you do this? There's no reason given in verse 3. It's not that the Lord is a terrible king who misuses his authority. They, they just don't want to serve him. It's as simple as that. They just want to be in charge themselves. So the primary problem here is not political. This is spiritual. They don't mention any intended result. They simply say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. In other words, they reject God simply because he is God. They love the darkness. They want to stay in it. As Jesus said in John 3 verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is why. It is because their works are evil and they like it that way. By nature, no one is inclined to draw near to God. And this rebellion is often incremental. It may not always come out clearly. There's this rumbling in, in the background, and, and we've noticed this in our society too, have we not? Every year, the line gets pushed a little bit further. They talk first, only make a plan later. It takes time for the rebellion to work itself out in a society, but when we start to see the fruit, we should not be surprised. Instead, we should ask ourselves, has there ever been a time when the nations did not rebel against God? Can you ever think of any time in world history when there was universal peace? There's never been a time when they didn't. Even if we had world peace in 2023, the rebellion would still be under the surface. So what does the Lord think about all of that rebellion? And here is where it really becomes surprising. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. He actually laughs. Why would he do that? 
He's referred to as the one who, who sits in the heavens. And the, the point of referring to him like that is not to highlight his distance. This phrase represents God's utter superiority over these people that are rebelling against him. Imagine that. The world is concerned about Putin and what he's up to. God just laughs. The world wonders Australia is, consider, is concerned about Xi Jinping and what he's up to. God just laughs. People are so worried about the Great Reset. God just laughs. How powerful our God must be that he can just laugh about these things. Have you ever thought about that? How remarkable his perspective must be. How different from us that he sees all of this and he just laughs. To hear God's laughter in the psalm is reassuring, isn't it? It reminds us of the difference in scale between man and God. We forget that sometimes. But to rebel against God is like a man hoping to outshine the sun by waving a candle back and forth on a hot summer day. The very thought is ridiculous. And it says that here. God holds them in derision. Derision is to ridicule, to show scorn. In other words, God thinks these people are utterly ridiculous. It's a little bit like encountering a wolf spider in your house. They came a little bit later this year. But maybe you found them in uh, your house as well. Wolf spiders. And wolf spiders are amusing because they, they cannot comprehend the, the difference in size. I mean, they have what? What is it? Eight eyes? Six? Something like that. They cannot comprehend the difference with all of those eyes between themselves and, and people. Right? They don't see the difference in size. So if you have a wolf spider on your, on your let's say, kitchen floor and you, you prod it with a broom, uh, you, you, get, you prod them a few times, they get really mad, then they start to jump up and down. They actually leave the ground. And then they have a go at you. They actually run at you. I mean, we have this, we have this spider which actually runs at something that is literally a thousand times bigger than itself. How crazy can you get? And that is the image being conveyed by this psalm. If you appreciate the humor in that, you can begin to see why God laughs at the nations and the people that rage against him. They simply cannot see the situation as it really is. With all of their knowledge, with all their insight, with all of their wisdom, they cannot see things the way they really are. And God finds that funny. Now, it could be that you understand what the psalm is saying, but you cannot share in the humor. Maybe you feel vulnerable because of the raging of the nations and the plotting of the peoples. For example, it has been difficult for Russian pastors to oppose the war in Ukraine. Regardless of what Putin says, the Ukrainian invasion was unprovoked and unjustified. That requires Christians and especially pastors to speak up. But it's very dangerous for pastors in Russia to do this. As of March, that was another thing that happened in 2022. As of March, if you live in Russia, even calling the Ukrainian war a war instead of a special operation can get you heavy fines and up to 15 years in prison. Now you imagine being a, a Russian pastor who has a family. You know you have an obligation to speak the truth. You must. But what about your family? 
That's no laughing matter, is it? There are many Christians who are threatened or outright suffering because of the raging of the nations. How, how does the psalm fit into that? Well, we should realize that the laughter in the psalm is not about the suffering of God's people. Psalm 56 verse 8 says that God keeps count of our tossing and turning when we lie awake at night and worry. Jesus said he numbers the hairs on your head. He says you're worth much more than many sparrows. God keeps track of your tossing and your turning in bed at night. He knows. Psalm 116 verse 15 says the death of his saints is precious to him. To, to other people, maybe life is cheap. But to God, it is precious, the death of his saints. So God does not laugh at the suffering of his people, whether here or in Russia. The laughter here is very specifically about the ridiculous arrogance of these people who are opposed to God. And the only way you're ever going to be able to laugh with them is through faith. Through faith, we can have our perspective corrected. And we need that correction. Because by nature, we are unable to see the sovereignty of God. We are unable to share in the perspective of this psalm. We have why questions, but they're very different from the ones that the psalmist is asking. We ask things like, why did God allow the Ukrainian war to take place? Why all this constant conflict? Why is this world such a train wreck? The psalm doesn't attempt to defend any of that. It doesn't explain any of that. It is completely unapologetic. It simply portrays. It gives us this image of, of God sitting in the heavens. And that alone already makes us rethink our own perspective. We do not have the right to demand answers. We're part of the problem. If anyone has the right to ask the why question, God does. And in a way, he does in this psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do they keep on doing that? And we could add our own questions. Why is, why is God so patient with people? Why does he not put an end to it? Why does the sun rise over this earth every morning? Why did the sun rise 365 times this past year? Why does he keep on revealing his king to people who by nature are inclined to rebel against him? Why, why, why? As, as Christians, this psalm makes us rethink our attitudes in so many different ways. Maybe also things from this past year. Because we are often used to rebellion when we see it take place. We don't care that people rebel against God in society or elsewhere. It doesn't really bother us until it infringes on our personal freedoms. Then all of a sudden we're up in arms. We're not worried or horrified that anyone would rebel against God in the first place. We're not concerned about his honor. Instead, we let ourselves get drawn into all sorts of causes and we... Let ourselves be forced to pick sides in issues that are often divided more along political lines than the lines of faith. Or we're motivated by fear. And that, that's the alternate, alternate perspective. If you're not motivated by the perspective provided in this psalm, you're probably motivated by fear. Were you afraid at all this past year? Were we ever motivated by fear instead of faith? Do we maybe need to repent from our fear? Sometimes that can be the greatest battle of all. What happens in your own mind? See, Martin Luther, he knew a lot about that. He lived in a time of far more turmoil than we could imagine. Far more than we've experienced. Here's what he said. Quote, 
We should learn to stand erect and be brave, not so much against tyrants as against ourselves. For Satan oppresses and persecutes us more through our own heart and our conscience than through the sword and tyranny. If we have conquered him here, if with a firm faith we have thrown him from this seat and have turned ourselves to invisible things, then we shall have not the least regard for the angry princes, kings, and tyrants. When they instill dread, this terror is not produced by them, but by our own heart, because it is weak and clings to present things, but cannot lay hold of the absent and invisible. End quote. See, the greatest battles take place in the heart. And sometimes it's not fear. Sometimes Christians share in the rebellion, the spirit of rebellion themselves, because we're all human. We all have this in our DNA, all the way going all the way back to our first parents. Let us cast off their chains. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Nobody's going to tell us what to do, my way or the highway. Our default setting is rebellion. It's a terrible thing for a Christian to absorb the spirit of rebellion and to express it. If we cannot, we cannot share in the perspective of the psalm if we have rebellion in our own hearts. So we need to constantly examine our own hearts and our own minds and pray together with David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So looking back on this year and on our life in this past year in light of the psalm can be intimidating. You start to realize how much it took for granted. We just assume that our perspective is correct. That our intuitions must be accurate. That our gut feeling is never wrong. That we have all the facts. But what if we don't? What if God is laughing at us sometimes? What if we shared in rejecting the king? After all, we were a part of this past year. What does the Lord think of this past year? If you look at it from the perspective of Psalm 2, he laughs in derision. He also speaks in his wrath. That was our, our second point. What does God do after he laughs? He does not immediately destroy these people. Maybe some of you do that with wolf spiders. You see one and you step on it right away. God doesn't do that with people. Instead, he reasserts his authority. And because it's his authority, he reasserts it on his own time. He won't let his hand be forced by world events, so to speak. We, we might look at the news and we might think, where is God in all of this? Well, the Lord does not let his hand be forced in any way, shape, or form. He has his own program. He has his own agenda. He will fulfill it in his own time. That's reflected in the verse 5, in the word then. When is then? Then is whenever the Lord decides. Then he will speak in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. He will respond in his own time. But what, what would you expect him to say when he speaks in his wrath? You would never have expected him to say the thing that he says next. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is his answer to the raging of the nations. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What kind of an answer is that? 
I mean, Zion was not a big hill, had a poor water supply. But consider again that Israel was the only place on earth where you could actually go to worship God. You worshiped him at the temple. The temple was on Mount Zion. Zion was ground zero of God's rule. Zion was the intersection between heaven and earth. Zion was the city of God, the city of the great king. Now, who ruled in Zion as God's representative? Initially, it was David and his descendants. But over time, the house of David fell into moral corruption, didn't it? They became no different from the nations who raged around them. They got drawn into all sorts of politics and political intrigues. From that perspective, the words of the Lord in verse 6 are not that meaningful anymore. He says, I have put my king on Zion. Well, so what if he's like every other king? What difference does it make if the king is no different from the kings of the nations? That is why this psalm can only be truly meaningful to us if you look at it from a New Testament perspective. The New Testament considers this psalm to be fulfilled in Christ. Again, there are 18 different quotations or allusions to this psalm in the New Testament. It was partially fulfilled in David and his descendants, but they were really just a sketch. They were like the the big lines of a sketch before the details get filled in. But the ultimate fulfillment, the person who was portrayed here was Christ. So consider then the grace in this psalm. Yes, it is a warning to the world, but it is also gospel. This is God's gospel to the world that rebels against him. He says, I have put my king on Zion. Defiant ultimatum to a restless world full of wickedness. God has a king. He's on the throne. His name is Jesus. No one else has a right to rule. No one else has the ability to rule. No one else ever will rule. Christ sits on the throne. And the nations and the rulers are terrified, it says in verse 5, at the very thought. The very thought of Jesus is rejected. Also today, you know, our, our society is actually very tolerant. If, um, if you spend some time looking at the actual evidence, the government puts out all these reports. I was looking at one today dealing with... Um, um, religious freedoms, among other things, in WA. The report was hundreds of pages. These people are very thorough. They're working out all the checks and balances. They want to do the right thing. The world has no issue with religion as such. Many kinds of religions are tolerated by our society. But the one thing they cannot stand is the exclusive claim made by God in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. But religion itself is not an issue in Western Australia. Take, for instance, the case of Hanin Zreika. She plays for the GWS Giants in the AFL Women's League. She's also a committed Muslim. So when the Giants played a pride round to show their support for the LGBTQ plus community, she refused to wear the jersey. She sat out the round. She's done that twice this year. That wasn't a problem. Her decision was respected. But when seven players from the Manly Sea Eagles made the same decision a few months later, well, we all know what happened to them. They were vilified. 
What was the difference? But in both cases, they were football players. They're players from a visible minority. Both involved players who were unwilling to wear a jersey that endorsed something that violated their religious beliefs. The only difference was that in the one situation, the player was Muslim, and in the other, a number of these people self-identified as Christian, and they made clear that that was the reason why they made that decision. That was the only difference. And that has got a little bit of the, the rumble of verse 6 in it. And the world cannot stand that. That was the only difference between these two cases. The world hates what people like that stand for. It's the same raging we hear in this psalm. Yet God's answer to these people is the same as it is to us all. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In Ephesians 1 verse 21, Paul writes that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. That is Jesus, the ultimate king, the one and only. There will never be another. There's both warning and salvation in this. Warning because there is no escape from his rule. In Romans 14, we read that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Every knee will bow. One day he will settle the score with all those who hated him and who rejected him. And he won't laugh then. But there's also salvation in him. Remember the meaning of Zion. Remember what Zion represented. Even here in the face of the nations, I've set my king on Zion. There is a Zion. There is a king. God reaching down to man. God calling man into his presence. God calling man to submit to his rule. That's the gospel. I've set my king in Zion. Our king is our savior. The king over the world, but also the church. We confess in Belgian Confession, Article 27, this church has existed from the beginning of the world, and it will be to the end. For Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. This holy church is preserved by God against the fury of the whole world, although for a while it may look very small and as extinct in the eyes of man. It doesn't say which men. That could be church members maybe too. It's easy to get discouraged. And then you should remember, Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. He continues to gather them. He continues to rule over them. He will continue to preserve them. He will do that because we can't. And he's willing to do it. So, what can you say about 2022 when you look back? Well, I can say lots of things, but one thing we can say for sure is this was a year in which Christ ruled. He didn't just sit back during the year while we did our thing. He reigned. And because of that, we are one year closer to the ultimate consummation of his reign. Judgment day is coming. It's a year closer now than it was last year. God set his king on Zion. The battle lines have been drawn. There is no going back. And that shapes the way you think about the year that passed. 
It feels just like yesterday that we were, that we were here on December 31st, a year ago, looking, or January 1st, looking at the new year, not knowing what would happen, and now it's all over. It was new to you. It was new to me, but it was not new to him. He's still on the throne. They threw the best. The world threw the best that it had at him for a whole year. He's still on the throne. He's still laughing. May our perspective be shaped by his word as we look back over the past year. May we all learn to laugh with him. Amen.